Thank you, Maya. And thank you, uh, Adam. Uh, it's great to be back here at Mosaic and uh, just really appreciate your fervor for Christ and your longing for his kingdom to come in its fullness in our midst. It's also good to be here with the Jospergers. I just have to say that. Uh, Dr. Josperger would kill me if I didn't. So uh, <laughs> just great to be here with my colleague and uh, her family, Jim. And so uh, we're going to be looking at Proverbs 4.23 today. And as we begin, I would ask this question, what's in your wallet? You've heard that from uh, Capital One. I'm going to be asking, what's in your water? What's in your water this morning? So Capital One, the credit card commercials, I'm sure you've seen them. They're on all the time. Uh, Jennifer Gardner, Samuel Jackson, and others. What's in your wallet? What kind of credit card? What's the quality of your credit card? What does that get for you? We're going to be asking, what's in your water? In Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your hearts, for it is the wellspring of life. And I'm going to be looking at Proverbs 4.23 this morning. Some English translations talk about wellspring. And I'll ask you to go through that verse, two translations with me in a moment. Uh, but the, the root there of the Hebrew is a matter of going out. This idea of wellspring, going out. The source, some would say that it's a, a source. Wellspring is how some translations get at it. So I'm going to be developing that idea of going out, that idea of source that's there in the biblical text, by way of this idea of water, wellspring. So I'm going to be developing it analogically. Is that making sense so far this morning? That's the last point that will make sense this morning. So uh, I'm glad we're, glad we're together here. But if we could go through... Two translations, very briefly. If you could read it with me, please, that would be great. Proverbs 4.23 from the English Standard Version. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Again, that idea of wellsprings, water, going out, source. NIV, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. The NIV, Proverbs 4.23. What's in your water? This is a verse that I memorized many years ago when I was trained by the navigators, and they're really big into scripture memory. And I asked my students in theology class to know this verse for for tests, uh, first-term theology, but really more than for a test, God tests our hearts. God is after our heart. And this message today is not a negation. It's really an invitation as we were praising God and worshiping this morning. God loves us, and God invites us to deep communion with God. Someone said to me during the, I don't want to call it intermission, but during the break between the services, uh, the person said, you know, C.S. Lewis had maintained that it's not what we think about God that really ultimately counts, but what God thinks about us. And God invites us into vital communion, and God is after our hearts. I love the scripture from 2 Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord range, range throughout the earth, looking for those whose hearts are committed to him. And if we were to do a study of scripture, I think we could find that just like in wisdom, Proverbs is about wisdom, right? As you're going through a whole series on wisdom. I don't think there can be any point more important about wisdom than guarding our hearts. For they are the wellspring of life. What's in the water? And God is searching our hearts, longing for God's people to really pursue God as God pursues us with a pure heart. And we need the Spirit 
to do that. But if we were to go through all of Scripture, I think we could find this heart trajectory focus throughout. God looks at the heart. Remember what God told Samuel when Samuel looked at Jesse's sons in search of the next king? Samuel, who's a really godly kind of person, right? And even Samuel missed it. So if Samuel missed it, I think we might miss it at times too. Samuel, you're looking at the outside appearance, outward appearance, because they were all looking, and Samuel was looking at sons of Jesse, you know, how big they were, their stature, and the like. God says, I look at the heart. And even so, I think, if I were to be honest with myself, I've never been a youth pastor. They don't let me near people generally in church. They just like me to speak and then go. Uh, But if I were to uh, be a youth pastor, I probably would want Saul, as in King Saul, over David in my youth group any day. Because Saul was easier to deal with. Uh, I think Saul was a bit more tame. He was a good Boy Scout probably. I mean, why did God take the kingdom away from Saul? He didn't wait. I mean, there's more to it than this. But he didn't wait for Samuel to show up to perform the sacrifice. But notice the heart trajectory when God says, I'm taking away the kingdom from you, Saul. What I see in the text is Saul says, okay, Samuel, okay, so be it. But don't leave me. Stay here for the photo op with the men so that they see that I'm still kind of, I've got it together as their commander. Whereas when David is told that he's a sinner, that he has sinned dramatically and big time, by what? By killing Uriah, raping his wife Bathsheba, Nathan says, you are the man. You've done this, David. I'm not going to allow you to get away with this. David says, against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David, though he had sinned against a whole community of people, especially Uriah and Bathsheba, realizes against God and God only he has ultimately sinned. Because everything flows from that. We're told in Acts, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I have commanded him to do. The trajectory of the heart is all important. That's wisdom. And God looks at the heart. God looks at the secret places. Tells us to pray in secret. Jesus doesn't want people to know what he's doing. There are a lot of factors bound up with that. He says, don't go on and commit, tell everyone about this, what I'm doing. He's not after fame. He's after God's glory. And we'll talk more about that this morning. So if we had time, and we have about three hours this morning. Um, I've never been good with time or math, so uh, this will be the last time I do speak to you. Uh, but th- this idea here, if we had time, we could just go at this over and over and over it again. John's Gospel. God looks at the heart. We see this. Everyone wanted the glory of man, but Jesus was after the glory of God. Really radical, dramatic. And that's wisdom. To above all else, guard our hearts, for they are the wellspring of life. So, Proverbs 4.23, not simply what's in our wallet or what's in our heart, but what's in this verse. Proverbs 4.23. The heart is the center of our spiritual lives. The heart deals with our motivations, our values, our deep affections. What makes us tick? What drives us? It's not willpower. It's not intellect. It's the affections. And even in the science, I'm working with neuroscientists and others who are spending a lot of time talking about the emotions and affections and how they drive us. There's a lot going on in that regard um, in our society and the sciences today. But the idea here is that the affections, the motivations, the values are what drive us. 
And we can look good on the outside. We can even do what Jesus does and still not about, be about what Jesus loves. And so as good as that statement is, what would Jesus do? More foundational than that even, biblically, would be what does Jesus love? And what Jesus loves drives what Jesus does. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. We want to obey because we want to get closer to God, to have God's heart, to pursue God with reckless abandon. As we were singing about that earlier this morning, just a little while ago. So the heart is the center of our spiritual lives. It's wisdom to be about the heart more than anything. I go to the gym, you can't tell that, but I do work out some. And at the gym, I'm just kind of struck by how often we're all standing before mirrors and flexing and things of that sort. And, you know, people spend hours upon hours upon hours to focus on physicality. And there's, there's a place for physical exercise. Paul tells us that. But if we were to really be wise people, we dedicate ourselves not to mirrors, but to really making sure that lens of God's heart trajectory is what we're pursuing and we're looking after. How does God see us from the inside out, not the outside in? So it's the center of our spiritual lives. The heart is the source of spiritual health or death. If we drink bad water, it can cause dysentery, it can cause disease, and it can shorten the lifespan. It can cause death. It matters. What's in the water? What's in the wellspring? What's in the heart? And the heart, the life of wisdom would say, Proverbs, the resource sine qua non, above which everything else we should safeguard with our very lives. This reminds me of a Smithsonian article that came out not too long ago, and it was about poisoning the well, poisoning the well, and how militaries in strategy and warfare from ancient Mesopotamia to modern-day Iraq will focus on poisoning the well, throwing carcasses, you know, animal carcasses in a well to poison the well, or divert streams. Romans were good at sieging a city, and when they would take over a city, before they would go in, they would sometimes sabotage the water supplies, because that was critically important, right? I mean, that's critically important to our existence, right? To drink water. And if the water's bad, or if we have no water, we're finished. And so beware of poisoning the well. Beware of the well-being poison. And so we'll be reflecting on that more and more during this talk today, and hopefully in life itself. Now, contaminated water and hearts prove disastrous to our health, and as I said, in a variety of ways. For all that is in the world, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. 1 John 2, 16. And I think here as well of Matthew chapter 4, I'm kind of haunted in a, in a significant way, in a beautiful way, by the temptation account of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is being tempted by the devil, you know, in terms of food, you know, hey, you know, turn these stones into bread, because Jesus is hungry, right? Forty days, forty nights, he's been in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. Israel was in the wilderness, how long? Forty years. So Jesus is in the wilderness, forty days, being tempted. There's a parallel. And Jesus doesn't do that. Doesn't turn the stones into bread. He doesn't, when Satan says, you know, throw yourself off this cliff, or what is it, off the, the Temple Mount? 
throw yourself down and the angels will pick you up. He doesn't want to put God to the test. You know, if you're the son of God, Satan baits him. And also shows him the glory of the world. Takes him up on a mountain and shows him the glory of the mount of, of the world. And all these I will give you if you will come and bow down and worship me. And what I'm struck by is that Jesus is immune to the enemy's temptations, to the baiting of Satan. And I want to become immune to Satan's temptations and the world's temptations. And I think the only way that that happens is that we are more and more secure in God's love. And Matthew 4, if you haven't thought about this, Matthew 4 follows from Matthew 3. Okay? This is a logic, logic point. Okay? Matthew 4 follows from Matthew 3. And in Matthew chapter 3, we have Jesus' baptism. Israel was baptized into Moses. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. There at the Jordan River, right? And, and so what do we see is that Jesus, when he's baptized by John, the Spirit descends... And there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And I think that what, and I believe this is true, I'm emphatic on this point. Jesus is so secure in the father's love, he doesn't have to prove that he's God's son. He doesn't have to show it. He's secure in it. I think the more and more that we're secure in God's love, in Christ, through the Spirit. And the Spirit, one of the key works of the Spirit, is to secure us in God's love. The love of God, Paul tells us in Romans 5, the love of God is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And the more we're secure in that love through the Spirit, the more we're immune to the temptations of the enemy. Paul says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Show me someone who is well-loved. I'll show you someone who's secure and someone who is not going to fall prey to the temptations of the enemy. To prove it that we're God's children. To prove it that we're significant because we are secure. And I'm not there yet, but I want to get there. To be so secure in God's love that the enemy's tactics don't get me. And Jesus was secure in the Father's love. And we are, through the same Spirit, to be secure. And what's radical to me about this, and I didn't develop this in the first sermon, but since we have three, first service, but since we have three hours this morning for this service, which I'm, I'm just glad always to do the last service because you just have infinite time. But um, when I think about the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and someone I like reading, Jonathan Edwards and St. Augustine, another one, they, they talked about these things. But the same Spirit who communicated the love of God between the Father and the Son from all eternity, that Spirit who led Christ and who indwelled Christ is the same Spirit who indwells us. And through that, we are holy ground because God's Spirit is within us. Abba, Father, through the Spirit, we cry out. And that's the securing work. And so we are to beware as a result of that a pretty packaging. God's Spirit moves in mysterious ways. And we are to guard against the pretty packaging that would so often deceive us. Someone was listening during the first service because they looked at the water bottle I had uh, afterwards to see what kind of pretty packaging I had. And uh, you should know better. I mean, the, the church, what did they give me? They gave me purified water. Let me tell you about purified water. Uh, well, we won't go in there today. But uh, beware of pretty packaging. You know, Consumer Reports and others will say that, you know, the soft drink industry is going down in terms of people buying Coke or Pepsi and other things. Bottled water's up. But not all bottled water... If you work for a bottled water company, this point's for you. Um, not all bottled water is worth the pretty packaging. Some of it's more harmful for us than tap water. 
And so we need to really be aware of what is in the water and not be deceived by the pretty packaging. So with that, I have a five-question water purity spiritual wellspring test kit uh, I, I want to go through with you, okay? So here we go. Five-question spiritual test kit on the wellspring of our lives, our hearts. First, do we value substance or style and celebrity? Do we value substance or style and celebrity? To get at this, I want to first draw attention to a documentary that came out uh, not too long ago. It's it's a well-known documentary. It's gotten a lot of awards. It's called 20 Feet from Stardom. How many of you have seen this documentary? Okay, nobody. Uh, Great, great. It's really effective. It's a a really effective illustration I'm I'm giving you here. Uh, But it's really about the background singers for rock and roll bands like the Rolling Stones and elsewhere and uh, other groups. And there's this famous uh, backup singer named Lisa Fisher who actually toured with the Rolling Stones for years. And she's considered the empress of backup singers. Sting, formerly of police, Sting said she's a star, she's a superstar. What I like about Lisa Fisher is that I find for a person who's been 20 feet from stardom, and some artists will say that that 20 feet is a long distance from the backup singers to the, the lead person singing. It's, it's a long distance, even though it's only 20 feet. But she's the empress, one person says, of backup singers. And she's very secure, they say. She's fine with being a backup singer, even though she could be front and center. But she talks about, I just love music. I love harmony and love melody and just to, to bring things together. But she said also, as she was being interviewed, I really struggle when I hear people. It's a different spirit when I hear singers saying things like, how do I network with this person to get to that person, basically so I can become famous like that person? She says, there's just really something slimy about that. I don't know why, but I don't like it. And Sting, when he's talking about success, and he's been successful, she's been successful, he says, I think it's really striking. He goes, there are a lot of people who just long for American Idol, to get on American Idol and to be successful. But he said, the real artists are about spirituality. They're, they're about something deeper. And if you get that stardom and you haven't been you know, spiritually prepared your success is going to be wafer thin. And I was just really struck by this because you, you don't think of these rock and roll singers and such as having death to them, but here are a couple of people who actually really had, about, had substance. I think a lot of times in Christian leadership, we could learn from them because I hear all the time in academic conferences and pastoral conferences, it can happen in church settings too. Like how do I network to get to that person so I can become that person? And who do we associate with? Look at who Jesus associated with and how often we're associating to try and go up the ladder. Jesus kept trying to go down the ladder. We're so often about upward mobility and Jesus' whole incarnate life was about downward mobility. And it really says a lot about the heart trajectory. Above all else, guard your heart for his wellspring of life. Now, Jesus, we mentioned him a few times today. We don't know anything about Jesus' style. We don't know anything about Jesus' personality. I'm not against personalities. But the scriptures are about his character. It's about his substance, is what I'm talking about. His heart trajectory. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Lutheran pastor, theologian, who was hung for his involvement in the conspiracy against Adolf Hitler, just hung a few days before the Allies came in to liberate. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his reflections on the pastoral epistles and the qualifications for a pastor or elder, said, in the pastoral epistles, in these qualifications, we know nothing of the style. He talks about personality cult of the pastor. But we do know is if the person has faithfully discharged their duties. How often in the American church, and I do love the church. I love it when the church is growing to be the church and to be what it is, not to be something else that it really isn't called to be. But so often in Portland and elsewhere, I hear talk about the style of a pastor, the style of the music. And I'm, I'm not against style. I have none, but I'm not against style. But that's not the heart. Above all else, guard your heart, the substance, not the style or the celebrity. Otherwise, a ministry, a person is wafer thin, to use Sting's language. So second test item for testing the water of our hearts, the trajectory of our hearts, what we deeply value. And the most important point in Scripture really is to, above all else, guard our heart. Because it says it, above all else. Do we value stewardship or success? I think many of you know about Vincent Van Gogh. There's a famous, you didn't know about the documentary, but you know about Vincent Van Gogh, I hope. There's a, there's a biography, a well-known biography, Lust for Life by Irving Stone. And in this, and we know, I think you know, that other than Rembrandt, Van Gogh is considered the greatest of the Dutch painters, and there were many. But during his lifetime, he wasn't well-known, and he was impoverished, even though he came from a wealthy family and clan. But he was talking about, in the, doc, in the biography, he was talking about this other painter who was charming and who had success and wealth. And Van Gogh says, I will take my suffering, my hardship, and my reality over his charm and his wealth. And I just was struck by that because Van Gogh was really committed to his art. I love it when people are good stewards of what they believe they're called to be. Whether they're successful or not. And this is really trying to get at, because we can say, oh, I'm going to go above all else guard my heart. But what does it mean to guard my heart? And I think by knowing some of the key questions that we should be asking, like, am I after about being a good steward, or am I really after success? And I'm not against people being successful. It's not about sour grapes. The question is, what drives us? And success should never be the focus. But are we faithful to what we're called to be? And Van Gogh was committed to his art. He was about stewarding that. Jesus, we know from John chapter 4, where he's with the woman at the well, right? You know that story. The disciples had gone into town to the 7-Eleven to get bento boxes or what have you, and they come back, and they see Jesus talking to this woman, and Jesus says, in response to them, my, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He was passionate about doing what God had called him to do, to be a good steward, not successful. And you see this even with how he associates with this woman who no one else in town would associate with. Because he wasn't about being successful. Because if he had been, he wouldn't have associated with her. He was after doing the will of God. We know a lot about who we are based on who we associate with and what drives us, such as being good stewards, being faithful. And as I get older, I'm realizing more and more, slowly, but hopefully surely, what really counts in life. And I'll be talking a bit more about this because it's really about the relational connections of what kind of relational connections we are fostering. So that takes us to the next item. Number three, 
Do we value souls or stuff? You know, people. People. Or is it stuff? And uh, Jesus has some strong words about this. Does he not? Moths, rust, moth and rust, destroy. Guard against this. Do not give yourself to where moths and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I've known that verse or those verses by heart for a long time. I think I struggled to live them out. And I'm reminded of this with the story with my son when he was a little boy years ago. Every Sunday after church, he and a friend from our church would hang out together. And this particular week, they were at our house. And I was outside. Okay, it was a Sunday afternoon. hate to say this to you, but it was a Sunday afternoon, and I was out caulking the house for painting. It was a really hot summer day. And before I did it, I said to my son, to Christopher, Christopher, I want you and Daniel to keep your bikes away from the car in the garage because I don't want you scratching the car with your bikes. And at the end of the day, Daniel had gone home. I go in for dinner. My wife says, Mariko says, you know, just go out on the back porch. I'll bring your food to you. You're exhausted. You're wiped out. It was a really hot day. And as she brings me my dinner, and I'm just, I'm toast. I'm wiped out. She says to me, by the way, she hands me the food. Christopher and Daniel scratched the car with their bikes. I, I don't know, some spirit, it wasn't the spirit, but some spirit came over me, a, a new energy. I was rejuvenated, and I haven't even eaten a bite. I hadn't taken a nap. I got up, I went into the house, and I said to my son, Christopher, I told you, keep the bikes away from the car. And he said to me, because he knew this text, because he had heard me note out at church all the time sharing this. He goes, Dad, in his deep voice, he always had a deep voice, even as a little kid, Dad, people are more important than cars. <laughs> I mean, out of the mouths of infants and babes, you've ordained praise to silence the foe and the avenger. I mean, that, that really hit me. Because it's not what is taught, it's what's caught. And my son saw what really drove me, where my affections were. It showed up, what I valued. Now, it didn't mean that he shouldn't have kept the bikes away from the car, but he saw what was really important to me at that moment. So, another item. Of course, you never struggle with these things. I just do. But number four, do we value relational connections or careers? So I'm building on this. And a friend of mine who has some real wisdom, very bright young man, really astute. He struggles in some ways emotionally and mentally, though he's brilliant. Recently, he had the opportunity to do Ph.D. work with a full ride. But because it would take him to a part of the country that he just knew was going to be challenging for him emotionally and mentally, he said, I've decided to postpone, even if I lose it, because I think I desperately need the connections to my family at this point in my sojourn. I thought, that's wisdom. Even though I wanted him to do this doctorate, the guy's brilliant, he's off the charts. But he understood what really counts is relational connection. So hopefully in a year or two, he'll be doing that. Because I'm not against doing the doctorate. It's the matter of that one has a doctorate. And above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. 
Do we value relational connections or careers? So careers are not a bad thing, but careers are meant for people, not people for careers. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, these religious elite who looked good on the outside, kept getting it wrong. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we struggle. I struggle with this. What do we pursue? Where are those connections that we have? Notice this with this picture of this father and son. And I asked during the first service about Cat Stevens' song. uh, Not Cat Stevens, it was Harry Chapin's song. Uh, Cat in the Cradle and the Silver Spoon, Little Boy Blue and the Man on the Moon. Some of you know that song. Those who are my age or older. Um, But it's a powerful song. It's a powerful song about... This boy who asks his dad, Dad, when are you coming home? When are you coming home? Because he was always on business trips. I don't know, son, but we'll be together soon. Later, when the boy grows up, the father asks him, Son, when are you coming home? I don't know when, Dad, but we'll be together soon. Haunting song. In this particular art piece, there was debate amongst people commenting on it, where is the father giving this block to fill the hole in his son's heart? Or is he taking the son's heart to fill some hole in his own life? And I think that's a really striking image about what really drives us in life. And careers are not bad. They're good things. But why do we pursue what we pursue? And I'm a very driven guy. So this message is as much to me, if not more so to me, than to you. And I always want to be soft before God's word. Because God is searching my heart, even as I speak to you. So, do we value relational connections or our careers? And you can say, well, why is it an either-or? Because I'm trying to make the point. It's not a matter of a both-and if there's a single-minded devotion. You can have a career. You can have stuff. But what drives you? What drives me? What is the focus? What is our heart trajectory? What's in our water? So the last question is, do we seek fickle fame or God's eternal glory? Earlier I said that for Jesus, he says, you don't have the things of God. The reason why they could not believe in him is because they didn't love God's glory. They loved human glory. So it wasn't that they had intellectual problems. It was a heart trajectory problem that caused them not to think well. John 5 and elsewhere. And Jesus says, love the glory of God, not the glory of people. Andy Warhol, some of you know who Andy Warhol was, pop cultural icon in the 60s. He had this image called, in the future, this little line, in the future people will be famous for 15 minutes. It's like that prediction came true. I mean, look at Facebook. How many likes did I get? Twitter, how many people respond to Twitter? We're just consumed with this so often. And I'm not against Twitter or Facebook, but it's a matter of, so often it's a matter of what kind of responses does one get? And he said, yeah. In the future, people will be famous for 15 minutes. I think we're looking for that fame. And God doesn't want us to be after fame. It's fickle. It's passing. It's, it's fleeting. God wants us to be about glory. And John's gospel is all about the hour of glory, which lasts forever. It goes through his cross and resurrection. And he wants us to participate in something that has far more significance for our whole eternal destiny. Because God loves us so much and longs for us not To live a life that's shallow. Wafer thin, as Sting calls it. But to really be about deep and abiding connections forever. 
And so Andy Warhol talks about this 15 minutes of fame, and he had this cast of superstars who were really, I think he understood that they were nobodies. And he was trying to prove a point. But because they were associated with Andy Warhol, they were somebodies. So they cast the superstars. Jesus' disciples, they're a motley crew. And he's not offering them fame, which is fickle. He's offering them glory, which is relationship with God through humility. And it's not from the outside in. It's from the inside out of Christ's character. And he longs for us to enter into that. And this really came home to me through a friend of mine named David. David is a guy who operates in the highest center. So you've you got to understand, I'm not against people being successful. I'm not about against people being good at their craft. Not at all. David is a very skilled statesperson. He comes into my classes, like my doctoral students' class, to talk about ambassadorship, because he's worked for the State Department in the Middle East, North, Car- North Korea, with Mercy Corps. He oversees hunger program the world for um, United Nations, uh, one of their departments. He oversees some of the programs related to hunger. And he has operated in very high levels of society and politics, but he doesn't give his heart to it. And I've always been struck, what is it about David, my friend David, who lives here in Portland, what is it about David that I never find him thrilled or in awe of people? And it all goes back to when his father passed away when he was a boy. His father, who was, you know, I think in state government in Oregon, and someone who was a jock, exercised a lot, ran marathons, but he couldn't keep at bay the pancreatic cancer that would take his life in his mid-40s. And when he knew his time was up, he called David to his bedside and said, David, I really enjoyed, and David shared this with my students this this summer, and it clicked for me. What is it that drives David? David, I've really enjoyed being your dad. David, and I think you've really enjoyed being my son. But from here on out, David... I'm having to entrust you to God, who's going to have to be that father to you, who's going to be that dad. Because I'm not going to be here. I really am just going to be your friend from a distance, but I'll be here for you, so to speak. But God is going to have to be your father now, David, and I entrust you to him. And David said to my students, and he says it to me this morning, he said, we're going to be forgotten. He knows the transiency of life. His father died when he was a boy. We're going to be forgotten soon after we die. But will God remember us? And of course God remembers us. But how will God remember us? As C.S. Lewis said, it's not what we think about God that really counts, but what God thinks about us. And it's not ultimately a negation, but an invitation. Not to seek after fickle fame, which is really passing, but God's glory, which is our hearts being wed to Christ's heart and really being concerned for God's gaze upon our souls. And is God pleased with our heart's trajectory? What motivates us? What we value? So with that, where do we go from here in safeguarding the heart? And there's communion to follow here shortly. And of course it involves the Spirit of God. And I always know someone who's clicking on the right cylinders when they're desperate for Christ. Not like the Pharisee who thinks, thank you, I have it all together. That's never a good place before God. And sometimes I have that struggle. My dad was a very simple man, but a deep man before God. Said of my PhD, pilot high and deep. And, you know, sometimes I think about my dad, how I sought to just break my parents' heart when I was younger, and how they kept loving me and loving me and loving me, a great sacrifice. And sometimes God at communion 
reminds me of my dad's love, and it reflects Christ's love. And I realize I don't have much going for me except that my parents love me radically and simply. The Pharisee thought, thank you, God, that I'm not like the tax collector. And the tax collector said, woe is me. God have mercy. And we need the Spirit to depend on the Spirit to change our hearts because I can't change a heart. We need the Spirit. So that desperation, may we go to the communion table with that holy desperation for God to show up. And to dig deep into the Scriptures to see what God's after with the heart. More than what would Jesus do to what does Jesus love and to get God's heart as we dig into the Scriptures together. And then the saints. We need people around us. Not that we're in a holy huddle. We need to be out in the world as salt and light. But we need people whose heart trajectory is radically focused on Jesus Christ. And I have some friends like this, a man named Dr. Ron Frost, who just, he reads the Bible five times a year, but that's not his point. He doesn't promote that. What he promotes is how much God loves us, and you see that reflected in Scripture, and God calls us to dedicate our life. When I'm around him, I just kind of get more attracted to Christ. And I need people around me, because iron sharpens iron, Proverbs says. Cream puffs don't sharpen cream puffs. We need people to sharpen us. We need people to sharpen us so that we go deeper into Christ. There are a lot of wars going on today, a lot of wars going on, and some of them revolve around water because there's increasingly a water shortage and clean water shortage. Militaries are going to battle. Nations are going to battle for clean water. God wants us to go to battle together to hold one another accountable that we go to battle to make sure our heart trajectory, our wellsprings are pure and unadulterated for Christ. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And may God bless you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and grant you his peace. Amen.